Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. So chapter 10 of Mark, it's a, the, whole, the whole chapter's on discipleship. So the, the setting, Jesus is now walking towards, to, towards Jerusalem for the last time. Uh, it's the, depending on how quickly he's traveling, you're talking about the last few weeks, last couple of months of his life. He's got the 12 disciples with him, and there's also this larger crowd of followers who are with him, and they're approaching on the calendar Pentecost, which is one of the three major Jewish festivals where uh, Jews would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. So the, the context for Pentecost or what they're celebrating, it's God delivering the Israelites from Egyptian bondage through Moses. So just like, you know, in December, we're thinking about baby Jesus. And in April, we're thinking about the cross and the resurrection. These guys at this point are thinking about being delivered from an oppressive government by the Lord through this, through, in this case, through Moses. And so they're thinking Messiah. We need somebody like that. We need another Moses who will deliver us from this oppressive Roman government. So that's kind of what's on everybody's brain. And the 12 have all already acknowledged that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't understand what that means. So back in chapter 8, when he says, who do you say I am? They say, you're the Messiah. And Jesus said, that's, that's right. So all of those things are kind of swirling around here in chapter 10. And so we're going to try to do a, a big chunk of this today. But we're going to start in the middle. So this is important for us in terms of context. So this is start, I'm going to start in verse... 32, and then I'm going to go backwards and forwards from there. You can think about this as the bullseye, or maybe like the rock in a pond that then ripples out. So this, this is the rock. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, and those who followed, so that's that larger crowd, were afraid. Again, Jesus took the twelve aside, and he told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. So this is the third time Jesus has predicted his death. It's the most specific of the three. And again, for us, this seems so straightforward. How do they not get it? He's, the words he's using. Flog, spit on, kill. Like he can't be more specific. But the the twelve still are not understanding. Just like we can't conceive of Jesus who doesn't die on the cross. That's one of the first things we learn about him is that he died for our sins. Just like we can't conceive of a Jesus who doesn't die on the cross, they can't conceive of a Messiah who does. It's how it, the the strength of their expectations is such that even with Jesus speaking very plainly, this is what's going to happen to me. They, they can't hear it. It doesn't shake their understanding of the Messiah is going to deliver us. And the way you deliver somebody is you beat your enemies. You don't get spit on by them. You don't get flogged by them. You don't get mocked by them. And you certainly don't get killed by them. That doesn't sound like victory anywhere. And so in their mind, when G, they, again, it's so difficult for us to think, how do they not get it? They're not getting it. And so even with this explicit prediction of his suffering and death, they're not, they're not understanding. But it's really important for us. 
chapter 10, this is in the middle of it, and Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm different. I am the Messiah. You're right about that. I'm going to Jerusalem to establish my kingdom. You're actually right about that, but you're not right about anything else. And so he, he, he's unpacking for them. This is, what it, this is the kind of Messiah I am. Let me remind you. And this is what it looks like to be one of my followers. This is what it looks like to live in my kingdom under my rule and under my reign. It's not what you're thinking. We saw that last week when we looked at marriage and divorce. It's not what you're thinking. And we'll see it this week when Jesus talks about some other significant areas of our lives. So now look back starting in verse 13. We're going to read two interactions Jesus has back to back. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And Jesus took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. So keep that in mind and contrast that with this. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? good Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you should not murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter spoke up, We've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecution, in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. I want us to look at these two groups, uh, contrast them with one another. Uh, back in June, Chad talked about this rich young ruler story, and he looked through the lens of what is Jesus saying to us about wealth. It was, it was good. You need to go back and listen June 12th. Um, I'm not gonna, so I'm not going to recover that ground that Chad, that Chad already covered. What I'm going to do is look more these two people and their approach to Jesus. So first, we have parents who are bringing infants and toddlers to Jesus. These are children who are small enough for him to hold them in his arms. And the disciples rebuke the parents. Remember, rebuke is a strong word. That's a strong word of correction that's rooted in a strong disapproval of somebody's actions. So that it, it's, it's, if you've ever been rebuked, it's kind of startling. It's much more than somebody saying, hey, maybe let, let's leave Jesus alone or he's busy. Or It's a strong word that's don't do this anymore. Like you're, you're wrong bringing these children to Jesus. And we read that Jesus is indignant. He gets very, he gets angry. This is actually the only place in Mark where Jesus is said to be indignant. And when he cleanses a temple, it certainly, he seems like it, but he's not said to be that way. The only time he's described that way, that's how strongly Jesus reacts to the disciples response to these parents. And he says something that doesn't make any sense. If you're one of the disciples 
And you're thinking, all right, he's the Messiah. The Messiah establishes a kingdom. That's going to happen in Jerusalem. That's our most important city. That's where the temple is. He's headed there now during one of these major religious festivals where we're thinking about we need someone to deliver us. We need a new Moses. If all that's what's going on in here, and then parents are bringing their children, their babies, they're, at best, they're a distraction. And at worst, they're a hindrance. We tend to idolize children. Children were not hated at, at, by any means in Jesus's day, but they certainly weren't put on a pedestal the way we put them on pedestals. At this point, a, a child is mostly potential. All it's doing is taking away from a household is not adding anything to it. They can't, they can't do anything. These are, again, these are babies. These are infants. These are toddlers. And Jesus says, no, don't hinder them. Let them come. Actually, the kingdom of heaven belongs to ones like this. And the disciples are going, what? What? And even further, if you don't receive the kingdom like one of these little kids, then you can't enter it either. How does a little kid receive? Again, infants, toddlers, don't think about purity or innocence. They call it terrible twos for a reason. That's not, that's not what, he's, what he's talking about here is their helplessness. You leave a baby alone, what happens? The baby dies. Infants are 100% dependent upon their parents for their well-being and their welfare. That's what Jesus is highlighting. To receive the kingdom like a little child is to acknowledge your neediness. Is to acknowledge your helplessness. Is to say, like a little baby, I've got, I've got nothing to offer. I'm 100% dependent upon you for my well-being and my welfare. And then you contrast that with this rich young ruler who comes. The stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you put those together. Uh, they all tell us he's rich. Matthew tells us he's young. And Luke tells us he's a ruler, probably of the synagogue. And he approaches Jesus and he falls on his knees before him. Maybe he's never done that before. Who knows, based on his position. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, your understanding of this depends on whether or not you think he's sincere. I think he is. Some people think he's not. They say he's using flattery to try to kind of get something out of Jesus. I don't see that. Jesus, Mark tells us Jesus looks on him and loves him. We don't see Jesus... Described that way again with anyone else in, in Mark. We know he loves other people, but we're not told that he does. And if there's one thing that we know about Jesus is he calls out hypocrisy and pretension like that. He doesn't tolerate that. So if this guy's being insincere or disingenuous, I, I don't think the response from Jesus would be to look on him and love him. I think he would, he would, he would love him and he would call him out. But he doesn't do that. So we got a guy, I think he's sincere. We've got a guy who's righteous. He says, I've kept all of these commands since I was a boy. And Jesus doesn't say, well, no, you haven't. And we know that he's, he does that. He calls people out. He doesn't do that with this guy. So there's no reason to, to doubt that he has kept the commands. He's got wealth. He's got status. He's got influence. He's bringing a lot to the table. If you're the disciples and you're thinking, we're going to Jerusalem. We're on the way. We're going to establish a kingdom. You're probably looking at this guy and going, we could use some folks like that. We need more of those guys. We need people who are righteous, people who are sincere. It doesn't hurt that they have wealth. That can be, a, for, for many, that was seen as a sign of God's favor. Not for everybody, but for many it was. He's got a position. He's got some influence. 
We need guys like that on our team if we're going to establish a kingdom here. And Jesus' response to him, we don't see him ever say this to anybody else. Sell everything you have, then you'll have treasure in heaven and follow me. And if I'm one of the disciples, I'm going, I've been following you for two and a half plus years. You haven't said that to anybody. Why are you saying it to him? We need guys like him. Why would you be turning him away? You're saying yes to these little infants and you're saying basically no to this guy. Or you're setting such a high bar. Like who's going to, who's clearing that? They're bewildered. They say, then who can be, if not him, then who can be saved? If a guy like that can't be saved, then who can? Throws them for a loop. That one question or that one statement Jesus makes is key. One thing you still lack, which is interesting to think about what he lacks when we're so focused on everything that he has. He's got money. He's got sincerity. He's got righteousness. He's got status. He's got influence. What does he lack? It's a willingness to sell everything that he has. That's one of the things that's easy about being a baby. You don't have anything. So you don't have anything to give up. This guy's got a lot. If you think about receiving the kingdom of receiving a gift, the guy, a, a child, their hands, are, their hands are empty. They don't have anything. Not consciously aware of their neediness, but we are. This, young, this rich young ruler, his hands are full. And Jesus puts his finger on the thing that's got the tightest grip on him, your money. You got to sell everything. I need you to trust me completely and fully and your money is going to be an idol. It's going to tempt you every day to trust in it and not in me. And you can tell Jesus put his finger on the right thing because one of the saddest verses in all the Bible, the man's face fell and he walks away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus loves him, but he doesn't chase him. He offered an invitation and the guy rejected. And then there's this talk on money. You can go back and listen to that sermon from June 12th. Last two interactions you can flip over. And I want you to think about these in light of one another as well. Verse 35. Then James and John, so remember James and John are part of Jesus' inner circle. Peter, James, and John and their brothers. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Anybody ever starts with that? You get nervous, right? (laughs) We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I want you to listen to this last story, not just in light of James and John, but also the children and the rich young ruler. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
Many rebuked him and said to him, be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So maybe the most tone deaf request in the history of the world. Jesus has just said, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And James and John, two of his closest followers say, hey, hey, when you enter your glory, can we have the two best seats? Right hand's the best seat, left hand is the second best seat. We want those. If nothing else, remember, they're part of a team of 12. And they jump the line and say, pick me, pick me. And Jesus, this to me is amazing. He doesn't rebuke them. He's not afraid to do that, and he doesn't. And the only reason I can think of why Jesus wouldn't rebuke them is because their request doesn't warrant a rebuke. Like, we hear it, at least I hear it, and I'm like, that. That is the most selfish, short-sighted thing. How do you ask that ever? But especially after the guy you're asking it of just said, I'm going to die. Like, how, do you, how do you do that? But Jesus does not rebuke them. It's amazing to me that he doesn't. So there's something about their request. It doesn't warrant a rebuke. We've seen him rebuke Peter already. He's not afraid to do that with the 12, but he doesn't. He, he asks him a question. He says, hey, y- y'all don't know what you're asking, and that's true. They don't. They don't get it. They don't, understand what, they don't understand the road that he's on. Y'all don't know what you're asking for. Can, and that's what he basically says to them. Can you walk the road I'm walking? Can you drink the cup, be bapti- undergo my baptism? Those are two ways of talking about his suffering and his death. Can, can you do that? And they don't hear suffering and death. I think what they're thinking is, yeah, we can. We've been following you for almost three years now. Sure, sure, we can keep going. It's not that far to Jerusalem. Sure, we, like, yes, we've, we've proven ourselves. We can do that. And then Jesus says, and it's hard to know how much he knows at this point, but he says, well, you're going to actually. And again, he's, he's flipped it on them and they don't know that. We know the rest of the story. You will, he's saying to them, you're going to suffer for me. And we know that happens. In Acts 12, James is beheaded. He's the first one of the 12 who's martyred. And John, we don't know what happens to him from the Bible, but tradition says he was tortured and then he was exiled under an emperor named Domitian. They tried to kill him twice. They, They threw him in a pot of boiling oil and it didn't kill him. And they made him drink a cup of poison and it didn't kill him. So then they sent him to exile because they got tired of trying to kill him and him not dying. That's just what tradition says. They both suffered and they, in James at least, was martyred. So they do walk this road of suffering, but at this point, none of that is in their minds at this point. They don't understand. They think Jesus is headed, I'm assuming the reason they're asking the question now is because they know Jesus is headed to Jerusalem and that's where kings are made. And so they're just trying, again, there's 12 guys on the team and they're just trying to get in the front of the line. And you can see the response of the other 10, they're indignant, irony, Jesus is indignant with them for keeping children from coming to them, coming to him, excuse me. They're indignant with James and John because they asked to be first. It just shows kind of where their hearts are at that point. They're just thinking about kind of themselves and and their position in this kingdom that Jesus is about to establish. 
And then Jesus pulls them aside and he gives this teaching on power and authority and says, this is the way the world operates. Power is used oppressively. It's used to make people do what you want. That's what those terms lorded over and exercise authority. Those are negative terms that have to do with forcing someone to do something, using your position to do that. And Jesus says, that's not the way it's going to be in the kingdom. You've got to be a servant, someone who waits on tables. And even more, you've got to be a slave, someone who doesn't have any rights except the ones given to them by their owner. That's how you have to be. The son of man, if anybody deserves to be served, it's the son of man. But that's not why I came. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a payment to set people free. An ultimate expression of service, right? Giving up your life for others. Completely turns upside down what leadership, what power, what authority look like in the kingdom. Very different than they do in the world. Just like money in the kingdom looks very different than it does in the world. Just like marriage in the kingdom looks very different than marriage in the world. And and that's one of the things I want you thinking about. Chapter 10, Jesus hits these three major areas where he's saying, "I, I I want these things brought under my authority. If you're following me, I care about your marriage if you're married. If you're following me, I care about your wealth. If you're following me, I care about how you're using your positions of leadership. And so one of the questions for us this morning is, where are you being tempted? And we all are. Where are you being tempted in these areas? Last week, we don't have time to go back over it, but we said what Jesus is looking for in marriage is for two to become one and for them to stay one until somebody dies. But what we tend to do is this. And, it's, and, and we fight oneness. We want to retain who kind of who we are in, in the worst sense of that phrase. We're unwilling to surrender and become one. And so that's my question for you this morning. Is there something that you need to surrender within your marriage in order to facilitate oneness? And like we said last week, you can all think of things your spouse needs to surrender. What I want to know is what do you need to surrender? And if you don't know, then just ask because they've got the list and they'll tell you. And this is what some of you are saying. It's not fair because this is what my marriage is right now. I've surrendered and they haven't. And I would say, keep praying. This is what you signed up for. You keep doing this. They're responsible for their heart and they're responsible for, and their response. You're responsible for your own. So love doesn't keep a record of wrongs and it doesn't keep a record of rights. You continue to look for opportunities to surrender. With your wealth, in wealth, we're tempted. We're tempted to trust our money versus trusting Jesus alone. And one of the things that when we hear this, we just, we immediately say, well, I'm not rich. So this doesn't apply to me. One, it does apply to you because you're a follower of Jesus. And two, you're rich. We all are. You can go to this website, howrichami.org. And it'll tell you. And you're up, you're up there. You put in your after-tax income, you put in the size of your household, and it'll tell you where you rank globally. By any measure, historically looking back or globally looking out, we're all rich. All of us are. But even if we weren't, the love of money, 1 Timothy, still can take root in our heart. And we're tempted with whatever we have. 
Matthew 6, to try to serve money and to serve God, which is where this rich young ruler was. The love of money had taken root in his heart, and he was trying to play both sides of the fence. And Jesus said, you can't. You got to get rid of that so you can follow me. Only person he ever said it to in the Gospels. But it doesn't mean that it's not a serious challenge to us. All of us are tempted to trust in our wealth. There's a reason when Jesus said you can't serve two masters, his example was money. It's tempting to, uh, it says, trust me and I can take care of you. Trust me and I'll make a way for you. Trust me, I'll make everything okay. And so we need to be asking the Holy Spirit, has the love of money taken root in my heart? If you're not willing to ask the question, the answer is yes. Ask him the question. Has the love of money taken root in my heart? Ask him, am I right now attempting to serve God and mammon, God and money? See what he says. We're tempted when it comes to leadership. Many of you have a position of leadership, whether it's formal or informal. People look at you. And we're all tempted to use our influence or our power to get other people to do what we want versus using our influence or our power to serve others. Philippians 2 is a great passage. Have the same mindset in your relationships with one another. Have the same mindset as that of Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. So for us, how often do we use positions of leadership for our own advantage? Don't do that. Be like him who became a servant, took on the very form, the nature of a servant, made himself nothing by doing that. And so that's a challenge for us. Am I doing that in my relationships? Husbands, in your homes, are you serving your wife? Are you lording authority over them? Parents, with your kids, are you serving them? Are you lording authority over them? Those of you who are managers at work or employers, Are you lording over those who report to you, your direct reports? Or are you serving them? That's all upside down for where we live. But that's a challenge for us. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or for his own advantage, but became nothing, nothing, taking the very form of a servant. That's a challenge for us in the kingdom Servants, slaves, that's who's first, that's who's greatest. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so that's the model for us. That last story, and we're going to close with this, Bartimaeus. He's the only, he's the last person healed in Mark. And he's the only person named. He's held up as a model disciple. A lot of people think the reason he was named is because the church knew him. He became a follower of Jesus. He goes from being on the side of the road to following Jesus on the road with him. And that people in these congregations would have known who he was. In that sense, he's almost famous. Not at this time, but he became that. He's held up as a model disciple. And you can, to me, I can see some resonances with these other encounters. To me, Bartimaeus is an adult example of what it means to, to receive the kingdom like a little child. If you're like, I don't know what that, I'm an adult. What does it mean to be helpless or or needy? Like I've got skills, I've got, what what are you talking about? Bartimaeus is a picture of that. What he says when he hears Jesus walking by is, have mercy on me. So most people, and maybe even Bartimaeus himself, would assume the reason Bartimaeus is blind is because God is judging him for some sin in his life. 
and blindness was his judgment or his punishment. So to ask for mercy, mercy and grace are not the same, but they're close. Grace is when God gives us something good that we don't deserve. Mercy is when when God withholds some discipline or judgment that we do deserve because of our behavior. So they're, they're, they're similar. They're both rooted in God's compassion and his love, but they're not the same. Grace is the giving of something good that we don't deserve, and mercy is the pulling back or the withdrawing of some judgment that we do deserve. So when Bartimaeus says, have mercy on me, what I hear him saying is, I acknowledge, yeah, I'm get, don't treat me based on my track record. I'm a blind beggar. I got nothing to offer you. I'm asking for mercy. I'm asking for you to be kind and compassionate because that's who you are, not because I deserve it. He's like a little child. He's acknowledging his neediness and his helpfulness. I feel like he's a more mature version or has a more mature understanding. Maybe that's not the best word, but that's what I came up with. A more mature understanding of Jesus and the kingdom than even James and John who are insiders. When James and John say, we want you to do for us whatever we're asking, what I hear from them is, we've earned this. This is what we want because of our faithful service. This is our reward. These two great seats. Bartimaeus doesn't do that. He says, have mercy on me. He's not approaching Jesus based on his track record. He's saying, I I don't deserve anything. I'm asking for you to be kind and compassionate. I see him as a contrast, a real life contrast to the rich young ruler. Bartimaeus willingly throws his cloak aside. That probably is the only thing he owns. And he throws it aside and like, not to be crass, he's blind. He's probably not going to be able to find it again. I mean, that it, it, to me, it demonstrates his level of faith and his trust in Jesus. He throws aside definitely his most precious possession and probably his only possession. The rich young ruler is not willing to do that. He's not willing to sell his stuff. Bartimaeus just throws his away. We see that contrast there. What, what, what is Bartimaeus trusting in? He would have put that cloak out in front of him every day. And when he's begging, people would have thrown money on that thing. So if he throws it away, whatever money's on there is gone as well. Whatever he's been given up to that point. It's a very different picture. So this is what I want us to do. That's a lot of information and a little bit of time. We're going to close with communion. And the way we do that here at Stonebridge, you'll come forward a row at a time. And you'll break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. And there's gluten-free bread as well. And we'll have ministry teams in the corners. And here's some things I want you thinking about, if you wouldn't mind closing your eyes. So y'all think about these things. First, we want to confess. Sometimes it's scary to confess. Communion reminds us that all of our sins have been forgiven. And in some mysterious way, when we take a piece of bread and dip it in juice, that that grace is applied to us. It's almost like we're eating physically as a sign of what's happening to us spiritually. So if you're willing, let's ask the Holy Spirit to search us and know us. That's part of his job. And he won't overwhelm us with conviction, but he will put his finger on the things that today are the most important for us to address. So think through those three primary areas from Mark 10. Even if you weren't here last week, those three primary areas from Mark 10. 
and maybe pray something like this. Holy Spirit, would you show me if there's an area in my marriage, if you're married, if there's an area in my marriage where I need to surrender. See if something comes to mind. Is there an area where I'm resisting oneness? See if something comes to mind. Where I'm trying to separate something that you've glued together. Next category. Holy Spirit, would you show me if the love of money is taking root in my heart? Would you bring conviction if I'm trying to serve you and money? Last, Holy Spirit, would you show me that if in my relationships, particularly the the relationships where I'm the leader, whether that's formal or informal, do I have the mind of Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of, something to be used for his own advantage? Am I doing that? Am I taking advantage of the leadership positions that I have? Trying to get other people to do what I want them to do. Or am I serving? There's kind of two different ways of approaching that through that lens of Bartimaeus, wherever the points of conviction are. Is this an area where where maybe you would say, I need to acknowledge my neediness and my helplessness? Sometimes I wonder what would have happened to the rich young ruler if like the father of the epileptic boy, if he would have said, I believe, help my unbelief. How different that story would have been. Instead of him just turning and walking away, what if he would have said, I want to, I just, I don't know how. I don't know how. I've never known life without this. I have no idea how to sell everything. It scares me to death. How might that story have been different? Do you need to acknowledge your neediness and your helplessness this morning in your marriage, in your finances, in your office or some other position of leadership? You need deeper levels of trust. That's a different way of looking at it. Holy Spirit, I pray for each one of us that you would speak and that we would respond. I pray we would not harden our hearts and resist what you're saying. I pray that we would yield to you. I pray we would acknowledge, as Kim said at the beginning, Father, you're a good father, and so we can trust you. We can trust you. As you take communion again, it's not just, you're not just remembering something, although we are, we're remembering Jesus' death and resurrection in some mysterious way. We're also taking in God's grace. Psalm 103 talks about the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection. He forgives us of all of our sins. So whatever Jesus brought to your mind, if you're willing, you can confess. You can just acknowledge Jesus, that's, that's a sin. Would you forgive me? And he will. 
That sin's already been paid for. He heals all of our diseases. One of the things that we like to do during communion Sundays is pray for all who are sick. And so if you're sick, we want to invite you after you take communion to let these prayer teams pray for you. It could be something that's uh, chronic, something that you've been struggling with. It may be something that's more acute either way. Redeems our lives from the pit. That was the theme of the songs that we sang this morning, it seemed to me. Crowns us with love and compassion. Fills our desires with good things. Renews our strength. As you take communion, receive the grace of God. And let these ministry teams pray with you and for you. Holy Spirit, I pray again as we take communion, more than just remembering, more than just a physical act, as you minister into us this grace and this mercy that we so desperately need. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 